Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. At the NCBC's most recent Bishop's Workshop that took place February 7th to the 9th of 2022, my fellow ethicist and friend, Dr. John D. Camillo, offered what I believe was the most challenging and thought-provoking presentation. His paper was titled, COVID-19 Vaccines, Conscience and the Common Good. In this presentation, John called on the attending bishops and everyone in the audience to pause and evaluate anew their positions on COVID-19 vaccines and mandates in light of the church's teachings on social goods, the moral conscience, and informed consent. This call was based on the growing body of information concerning the vaccines themselves, COVID-19 treatments, natural immunity, and the ethical issues associated with suppression of scientific data and discussion. John's presentation was so good that I wanted to share it with our bioethics on air listeners. So John DiCamillo, welcome back. Welcome once again to bioethics on air. Hey, Joe, my pleasure to be here again. Not to, uh, you know, put too much pressure on you with that intro, but we're 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 uh, we're looking for we're expecting we're, big things here. <laughs> yes, we're, well, you know, we're always expecting big things from you. So, so anyway, so welcome back. Great to have you on again. Um, like to start off today, and our our listeners they should know who you are. So so we we don't need to talk about your bio and everything else because you've done it already before. But I was wondering if we could start out by you telling us a bit about the NCBC Bishop Workshop. So what is it? Why does the NCBC do it? And what do we hope to accomplish through it? Yeah, sure. So the um, NCBC's Workshop for Bishops is an event that we've been putting on for decades now and goes back to way before my time. And it's every two years, basically, a biannual workshop at this point. Uh, We're at the 28th workshop this past February, this just last week. And the idea is that we are inviting basically the bishops of North America, uh, Central America, and the Caribbean um, to come and to hear sort of the latest information about what's going on in bioethics and Catholic healthcare ethics in particular, uh, to give them some insights from our experience uh, working at the center as we do with our 24-7 consultation line um, and the other experience we have in, in seeing sort of behind the scenes within Catholic healthcare and talking to various Catholic healthcare professionals, trying to give the bishops a sense of, hey, what's going on? What are issues that are important to you? Um, and, and how can we help you to think through and find the, the resources you need to direct healthcare ministries in your diocese and also to give guidance to the faithful on some of these uh, controversial questions? Yeah. And just to, to, to set the context, we're recording this podcast on February 17th. So the, the Bishop's Workshop just took place uh, last week as we're recording today. I have to say, this is my second Bishop's Workshop. And I and this one was a lot more, how shall I say, calm than the first one was. The first one, you're, <laughs> you, you're sort of like, oh my goodness, all these bishops and everything else. This one was a lot more, I was a lot more relaxed um, and was able to actually have a lot more just really just conversations, you know, during the, during the cocktail hour and stuff, just, just talking to the bishops, just very informally. And it was, it was a great experience. Yes. 
Yeah, it's wonderful. But yeah, it's definitely one of those things. It's like with the first one you go to, <laughs> it's like completely overwhelming. There's bishops everywhere. And it's like, you know, you're like, oh my goodness, where am I? And this is incredible. What an honor to be here. And then, you know, you get to you get to chat with some of them and then you start to get over the stage fright of presenting to 100 Absolutely. bishops in an audience. And, <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, and then it becomes a little bit, you know, you get used to it. And uh, it's nice to start to engage on a more personal level with some of them. Um, I also wanted to mention that a very, of course, important aspect of all this is that this isn't something that we just do by ourselves. I mean, it's also sponsored, it's funded by uh, the generosity of the Knights of Columbus, who have very uh, faithfully been assisting us uh, with this and, and making it possible for us to put on the event in the first place. So always a great uh, thanks to them for all that they do uh, in making this event possible. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to the night. I do have to nights. I should say. I, I do have to say that uh, the, the, my funniest takeaway from the whole. I, I think you know about this. It was during a, one of the cocktail hours. A bishop who will remain nameless um, came up to me and he said he he spends a lot of time in his car and driving in his diocese and he listens to the bio to our bioethics on air podcast. <laughs> and he said, Joe, I pictured you. You were a lot shorter. <laughs> usually i have a comment or a comeback i had nothing for that one so, so that bishop you will remain nameless but um you know who you are and uh I, i'm still laughing at that it was that was that was really funny so anyway so so john your presentation was titled as i mentioned before covid19 vaccines conscience and the common good so what was the impetus for this presentation? And overall, what did you want to convey to the bishops? So the impetus for the presentation, I think, is, is pretty clear. I mean, <laughs> the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has occupied so much of our attention and energy and has been such a, a big uh, impact on the entire world in the past two years since our last bishops workshop. Um, and in particular, the vaccine issue and all the controversies that have arisen around that, even within Catholic circles in particular, including questions about uh, religious exemptions and questions about mandates and all these sorts of other factors, the abortion derived cell lines. Uh, it, it was sort of as we were putting together the workshop and, and the theme was was clearly tied to uh, the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services, which is a, a document that the US bishops are responsible for that they publish, which we use extensively in our work. But it was sort of, we couldn't not speak to this topic, <laughs> uh, you know, after after two years of, of COVID and all these controversies. So the, that was a major impetus was to try to um, raise some of the key issues, which of course made it so complicated for me. It was a real challenge, you know, with just a 30 minute presentation to try to say, hey, you know, we've been dealing with this thing for two years and all these incredible controversies that, that are out there. It's yeah. like, what am I even going to say? Right. Um, but I did my very best to, to try to synthesize what I thought were some of the key points that, that should be helpful to, to all of us to reflect on and to the bishops in particular to reflect on at this point uh, in time um, it, for, on, on COVID-19 vaccines. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So I want to get into what you, you know, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of your, of your presentation, but I want to, if we can step back, I just want to set the scene, so to speak, because um, as you know, the NCBC, we've been accused of, you know, taking different positions and, and things that we don't actually take. So I, I just liked if we can kind of clarify the NCBC's reasoned and consistent position on this whole issue of vaccines and boosters and mandates. So John, just very, very briefly, how has the NCBC understood and offered consultation on the Catholic Church's teachings on COVID-19 vaccines and boosters, or, or maybe posed differently, how, how do we maintain that one can both accept and refuse them? Sure. 
Well, we've been clear since the beginning, and this goes back to even before COVID, that when it comes to any question of vaccines that may have a connection to abortion-derived cell lines in terms of how they were developed, the church has been clear and continued to be with COVID that it can be morally permissible to make use of um, vaccines that have been developed in this way, provided one has a sufficiently serious reason um, and, and other caveats uh, in, in line with that. Um, so the question, you know, we've reaffirmed the church's teaching, point number one, that vaccination in general can serve, uh, can be a particular good that serves a common good, and uh, COVID-19 vaccines in particular can be used permissibly if there's that sufficiently serious reason to do so. At the same time, we have said that there is a, a serious ethical problem with uh, exceptionless mandates for vaccination. We have, uh, we have said, you know, we do not endorse COVID-19 vaccine mandates, uh, given the fact that they are still, uh, the vaccines themselves still experimental is certainly a big piece of that. But uh, just at the level of uh, principle, we have been saying that there should always be, in any situation of a mandate, generous exemptions for reasons of religion, uh, medical reasons, or conscience reasons. Uh, and so that is our official statement on this. People can agree they can choose the vaccine, they can refuse the vaccine, and that's a prudential discernment of the individual uh, to be made with free and informed consent um, with regard to their particular circumstances. And that can be driven by charitable intentions and by uh, good, solid prudence, whether one is choosing to get the vaccine or whether one is refusing to uh, receive the vaccine. Um, and so either way, and that's how we advise people when we talk to them, you know, we, we talk through uh, with them what the considerations are, uh, what they might want to be aware of, what information they need, may need to seek or reflect upon. Um, but we always make clear that this is a decision for them to make uh, personally in the end. Uh, and, and we have, uh, again, opposed the notion of uh, mandates. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And it's funny, I, I'm just reflecting on probably had this conversation with people hundreds of times yeah. <laughs> it seems over the last six to eight months. Um, yeah. And our, our message has been consistent and, and you expressed it very, very, very well. All right. So let's, let's, let's get into your paper. So your, your presentation at the workshop focused uh, in a couple of different areas first on conscience. So John, can you, can you briefly uh, speak about how as Catholics we are called to form our conscience as well as the importance of gaining accurate and truthful information as we are forming it. Absolutely. So point number one is that medical decisions are moral decisions. Uh, That's one of the, the key lines uh, in my talk that I thought was very important to emphasize as we, we've, we've kind of lost track at times, especially with some of the discussions about mandates and some of the discussions about exemptions um, of this reality. We are talking about a medical decision um, but a medical decision doesn't mean it's just a personal preference. And, you know, you know, we at NCBC know very well from all the work we do at consults, this is all the time. End of life ethics is sort of the, the key area where you say, well, what's a proportionate treatment? You know, we have to judge the benefits and the burdens. What are the risks? What are the alternatives? What happens if we don't do it? Um, and, and the Catholic Church has been clear that that is a judgment of the patient. The ethical and religious directives themselves speak to that. On uh, ERD 57, uh, directive number 57, and um, and so that is is sort of a foundational point that a medical decision is not just a personal preference; it is a moral decision where we are called to discern God's will 
in our particular circumstance. And of course, we want to know what the barriers are. You know, what are the the no can do, can't go past this point, you know, euthanasia, assisted suicide, whatever it is, those are intrinsic moral evils we can never choose. Um, but it's not like everything else is just, oh, you know, just do whatever you prefer. You know, <laughs> it's a, there's, a, there's a discernment process and you're, we are always in our Catholic moral life and, and the Catholic moral conscience trying to ask, Lord, what is it that is best for me here? What is it that you want me to do here? Um, and that is, you know, forming our conscience means forming our hearts, uh, means, you know, reading sacred scripture. It means prayer. It means um, self-reflection, you know, questioning our motivations. Why are we doing this? Is it for reasons and passions and just what I want? Um, which is actually what we're not supposed to do, um, or is it what the Lord wants? It's me purifying, using my reason, and and trying to draw closer to the Lord in my heart and in prayer to see what's He calling me to do here. Um, and and so that's that's the way we have to think about conscience in terms of how it relates to medical decisions, even like vaccination. Uh, we we need to consider that we have a big picture here. It's not just you know whether a particular doctor says to us, oh, I think that you will benefit more from getting this than not. That's a piece of the puzzle. That's part of the information. Um, but there are also bigger questions about, well, what's the credibility of that particular source? How much do I trust that particular uh, individual? What competency does that person have? Um, and then a whole host of, uh, of these other considerations like, hey, is this the right thing for me here and now? Maybe it would help me, but maybe there are other reasons in my personal life, um, in my, um, you know, well-being, my spiritual well-being, why I would perhaps want to decline uh, an intervention that might do me some good or why I might want to proceed with an intervention that's risky. But nonetheless, uh, I, I feel called to uh, to take that risk. Yeah. So in other words, forming conscience takes work, it takes effort and it's work. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and at a minimum, I think we have to recognize that there's a, a question of diligence. You know, what's a due diligence that we should each be engaging in when we're faced with particularly um, momentous kinds of decisions. And, you know, there's, there's a certain earnestness, I think, that we should be striving for when it comes to conscience. That's not just, I'm trying to justify whatever I feel like I want to do but rather I want to figure out what the right thing is for me to do. What's God's will for me here. Yeah. And it gets even more complicated when we get into the end of life situations, when you're not making a decision for yourself, but you're making a decision for another person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. So following up on the, on the question of formation of conscience, uh, John, what role does informed consent play in the formation of conscience, at least in terms of medical decisions, as we're talking here. And what are the elements of informed consent? Yeah, so uh, there's much that we could say about informed consent. It's a very rich uh, topic, but to keep it simple and, and to try to get at your question here, I mean, informed consent is basically a sine qua non for a moral medical decision. Uh, you know, you are, in order to properly form your conscience to make a medical decision, you need to be able to uh, have access to appropriate information about the treatment that's being proposed about its alternatives, the risks and benefits and so on and so forth. Um, so you need that information about what's going on, what's being proposed, what are the other options, but you also need freedom. So actually uh, directive number 27 of the ethical and religious, religious directives states that um, free and informed consent entails, you know, the access to this reasonable information, risks, benefits, et cetera. Um, 
and, and that terminology of free and informed consent, I focus on those two aspects of it in, in my discussion just to try to keep it simple. So that is free and that it's informed. So it's not just, you know, that I, um, that I consent, that I just say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, they propose this thing and yes, I say it's okay. Consent's not enough. It has to be informed. And informed is not enough. It also has to be free. All right. So let's let's delve a little deeper into the informed part of informed consent, particularly with regard to COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. And John, I got to tell you that more than anybody else I know, you you are you're my go to guy in terms of information on this stuff. So um, so I, so I just want to thank you for for all the, the research and stuff that you've done um, on this since the very beginning. So. Um, we're, as I said before, we're recording this podcast on, on February 17th. So John, I'm going to ask you some, some things and just really brief answers just to kind of set a context here. So what does available information tell us about the efficacy of vaccines and boosters in terms of mitigating the symptoms of COVID? Okay. So yeah, I mean, first I need to <laughs> put the caveat out there that I'm not a medical expert. I'm not, you know, the, the expert when it comes to adjudicating the information that's out there. Um, and so, you know, no matter what I say here, somebody out there is going to accuse me of disinformation or misinformation because, you know, that's uh, the unfortunate climate that we're in right now. Um, but uh, I will I will try to speak to what is available information that's out there that I think is, is appropriate for people to at least be aware um, that this is being claimed. Uh, and, you know, whether and to what extent it's credible, I leave that to the individuals to, to assess. Um, but certainly, and that's I why think, we're, yeah. and that's why we're doing this is, is I'm, I'm asking you these questions, not necessarily to be, to give, you know, the, the final answer on all of this, but to demonstrate how these questions and responses to these questions right. go to form our conscience. That, exactly. That's, that's yes. the context of this. So, so John, as, as just kind of asking again. Available information. What does it tell us about the efficacy of the vaccines and boosters in terms of mitigating symptoms of COVID? Right. So to my understanding at this point, the the data support the notion that um, getting a COVID vaccine or a booster could at least temporarily uh, assist with the, the reduction of symptoms in the event that somebody contracts COVID. Um, now, it is my understanding also that um, it is more or less admitted now, I think, even by mainstream media and by most anyone, that the vaccines don't actually, they're not actually effective at preventing transmission um, or infection. So, you know, that means, it doesn't mean they have no benefit, but as, as we just said, uh, it certainly sounds like that they can be helpful in reducing symptoms, but it seems to be a pretty widely admitted reality now that they're not as effective at preventing transmission and infection as was initially hoped. <clears throat> yeah. And just as a caveat to the second thing, I, I just want to say um, that people who I've been talking to, who I, who I also trust, the very, um, you know, very informed people, are kind of saying a bit of the opposite in terms of the, the transmission of the virus. And they will say that actually some studies demonstrate that there is, you know, there's there's some level of, you know, if you are vaccinated or if you are boosted, that for at least some period of time, there is evidence that seems to suggest that it, it, they may not uh, prevent transmission, but it may make it um, more difficult, so to speak, for the virus to be transmitted. So again, again, right, this right. is the <laughs> final answers here, but yeah. there's different perspectives on this. But it's on this question, on the transmission question, it seems to be that the the the, the available information is unsettled. Right, would that, exactly. be a, that be a correct uh, statement? 
Well, I, I again, I'm not going to even presume to say whether it's settled or not, because you'll have people who will claim that it is settled it is in one settled. direction yeah. or the other. Yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, right. So so it's just now I have I have my own you know best understanding of that. I don't want to convey to our audience what my personal take on all this is, because I think, again, the important and the focus with the ethics question here is uh, how do we think through this? and recognize that there should be a process of discerning what are credible sources. And in the end, the more important point is, um, you may work through your process of determining a credible source and come to a different conclusion based on even who you know and who's actually maybe a better scientist that you came across than somebody else does. And we shouldn't have this become a cause for division. You know, this is one of the the reasons, uh, one of the other themes of my talk, you know, is trying to emphasize, particularly for the bishops as pastors, you know, we don't want to be, in a sense, taking sides on a scientific debate. Um, we want to emphasize spiritual unity and the fact that this decision-making process and the assessment of the credible credibility of the sources is an ethical duty that we all have to do our best with the information and resources we have and to, to draw those conclusions for ourselves. But we don't have to then go point the finger at other people and say, oh, well, you're terrible or uncharitable or you're not thinking about other people or whatever the case is, um, be simply because they've drawn a different conclusion about which sources they find to be most credible and why. As long as they've gone through a thoughtful, reflective process, I think nobody can contest at this point that there is a lot of confusion out there. There is not transparency, you know, and clarity on all the facts. And we've got people accusing every which way of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, whatever. Um, you know, so uh, I don't want anybody to think that there's not the final answer because there sure is. The question is whether we are humanly able to get to that right now <laughs> and what we're actually ethically held to do in a situation where there's such, um, such conflict and such um, opposition in the interpretation of the scientific data among the experts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. All right. So let me ask you uh, about a really non-controversial question. What, <laughs> what, is the, <laughs> what is the available information tell us about the safety right, of vaccines so, and boosters? So, yeah, I mean, I, here I think it's it's fair to say um, that the, the VAERS database, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System um, of the CDC, which is not an indicator necessarily of causality, but is simply um, you know, a reporting system for any kind of adverse event that might follow from vaccination, um, is at this point showing a number of, for example, at a serious adverse events, and in particular of mortality of death, um, that is drastically higher than any other vaccine in, in the history of recorded vaccines in the VAERS system. Now, by that, I don't want to immediately give people the impression that people are dying left and right, you know, but I do want to. Uh, and so to that point, I'll, I'll say that uh, we need to consider if we take the numbers in VAERS for at their face value without adding or subtracting. And there are people who will say we should subtract and there are people who would say we should, we should add, add. because yep. of underreporting factors and such. OK, we would just take them at their face value. OK. If we did that and we consider the number of, for example, deaths uh, versus the total number of people who've been vaccinated, there's percentage wise, you could say there's no real significant harm in the vaccines. Um, and actually, the number goes even higher if you want to say, let, let's calculate it based on the total number of actual doses delivered as opposed to people vaccinated. So the total doses delivered could be two doses or three doses per person. 
And so if you start doing that, then you get to something like 99.996 or, or higher percent, um, you know, of survival after vaccination, which is better, you know, than the, the rates of COVID-19 mortality. But either way, here's what I think is important from an informed consent standpoint is to understand that compared to other vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines have drastically higher mortality and serious adverse events. I think people would want to know that, like the average person who's going to get a vaccine. Yes, I understand that it's a a low likelihood on the overall grand scheme of hundreds of, you know, millions of people being vaccinated. But if you're telling me that this thing is notably more dangerous than all the other vaccines, that may be something I want to know. Um, So I I point that factor out. And I do think that there's there's a lot of uh, literature out there now that certainly speaks to the um, the pulmonary, I'm sorry, not pulmonary, the neurological, the cardiovascular and immunological adverse events um, that are associated with the COVID-19 vaccines. Again, the percentages are going to be small if we take the actual numbers compared to the total vaccinated, um, but comparatively higher versus all other vaccines. In fact, one of the stats that's out there is that when it comes to something like mortality, you have um, more than twice the number of deaths following COVID-19 vaccines um, compared to all other vaccines combined over the past 30 years, which again is notable. And you can even take another reference point like, for example, um, most products that go through the FDA approval process, if they end up out on the market and they cause something like 50 unexplained deaths, um, that's removed from the market, you know, and, and now we're at 20, over 20,000. So, so this is, and, and that's an unexplained death. We're not talking about confirmed, you know, causation that we know it actually was caused by the vaccine. Um, and so in this case, and that's another regrettable fact is that I'm not aware of, uh, data reporting or safety monitoring, for example, from, uh, FDA and CDC telling us, Hey, you know, here were, you know, 100, uh, you know, 100 cases of death following COVID vaccination that we investigated, we did autopsies, and we found out that actually it was not caused by this, it was caused by some other factor. I'm not aware of that information. Maybe it's out there. I'd love to hear it if it is. Um, but that's the kind of thing we would want to see is, okay, you know, maybe this is not causally related. The the VAERS alone doesn't tell us that. But where's the investigation? The, well, the public should know this if this is something that's being widely distributed, encouraged, promoted, and even mandated. Um, this is the very sort of information one should have access to for proper okay. informed consent. How about, John, available information on alternative treatments for COVID? Right. And here, I think we actually have a, a very, very serious um, uh, ethical problem. Um, when it comes to alternative treatments, uh, there has been, I think, a significant amount of um, not just avoiding the discussion, but of actual suppression of potential alternative treatments since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm not going to speak to intentionality here, but just in terms of facts, that there have been very clearly uh, various proposals, protocols since March of 2020, going back that early, you had Drs. Fareed and Tyson, um, you had Dr. Peter McCullough uh, and colleagues who came out later with the McCullough protocol. Um, You have uh, Pierre Corey, Dr. Paul Marek. These are intensive care physicians who um, developed protocols and and founded a group called the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, um, which has um, uh, basically preventive treatment protocols, early treatment protocols, and even hospitalization protocols involving ivermectin, for example. But there has been, again, so much politicization of this 
and, and a suppression of these options, which, which I think from an ethics standpoint is very troubling because I'm not here claiming that, that the science of all these particular protocols bears out that they actually, you know, would have saved who knows how many million people. I don't know that. Okay. I'm not, I'm not the medical expert, but what I can say is this, um, all of the proposed treatment protocols, uh, to my understanding, involved repurposing of existing drugs, vitamins, and supplements, which uh, one can certainly say have a much more firmly established safety profile and history profile uh, on the whole than completely new experimental vaccinations being developed um, to, to prevent COVID-19. So if you're in a pandemic situation, um, you know, one of the basic principles of, that, of ethics would be is that, yeah, of course, we want to develop any therapeutics we can that can help with this. But that takes time. There's a pipeline. And even if you speed things up and even if you do that in a, in a morally sound way um, that doesn't compromise the science, you still have this interval of at least months, if not potentially years, um, before you can get established um, effectiveness and safety profiles on anything new. So uh, if you have existing drugs that have years of confirmed safety, why not try to, to apply those? Um, and obviously medical professionals need to do that to make sure that in each individual patient's case, you know, they don't have contraindications to that particular drug or whatever it is. But, um, but on the whole, you're talking about established safety profiles. We know this thing is not likely to hurt most people, but it could work. Maybe it's ineffective, but at least it won't hurt them. We should be promoting and encouraging that so that we can gather the data. And then if it proves to be totally ineffectual, okay, maybe we stop doing it. But it's better than nothing uh, to, to be able to give it a, an attempt, uh, I would say. From an ethics standpoint, we should, we, we should have been, um, as, a, as a country, as a pandemic response, there should have been much greater discussion of these uh, early and preventive treatment protocols, as well as hospital protocols, um, even if they weren't perfect, even if they didn't have their, you know, fully randomized controlled trials, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, there's, it's a very important piece of the puzzle is clinical practice and trusting doctors' clinical judgment to develop their best responses. As time goes on, you improve, you weed out, etc., and you modify, which has also been happening. So since those early months, you know, we still have the McCullough protocol, and and it has demonstrated much more effectiveness. Does it work in everybody's case? Of course not, um, but you know, it's it's working much more um, than nothing at all, for example. Um, but from the data that's out there, so. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so I mean, these are these are the kinds of grave concerns. I mean, people should should be aware at a bare minimum. Well, you could take vitamin C, D, and zinc, for example, uh, as a general recommendation. Again, not saying that this is medical advice. Um, not saying that there aren't contraindications for particular individuals. Please, everyone has to consult with their uh, with their doctor. But what's wrong with people having the knowledge? This is a potential avenue. Let me talk about it with my physician because I, I you know, Joe, as, as well as I do. I mean, we, we, we've even had some of these conversations and talked to some medical doctors to ask, um, hey, what happens if I get COVID? Uh, and and the response has been, uh, oh, you know, stay at home, rest, drink some water um, and hope you don't go to the hospital. You know, that's become a, a theme <laughs> of the pandemic. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh, well, OK, but isn't there anything else we could try that's not likely to hurt me? Um, that sort of a thing, vaccinated or not, by the way, you know, again, this is because those who are vaccinated can certainly get COVID-19 anyway. So knowing that there may be some treatments, 
um, and even simple ones that could help with prevention as well as early intervention to reduce the likelihood of severe disease or hospitalization. This could have been phenomenal to, to help the overall pandemic response, I think. But that's, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on here, but that's, that, this should be, as, as, as we saw from ERD 27, I mean, it specifically states, and any informed consent should involve, what other alternatives are out there? Yep. Um, yep. Let me know. And, and maybe we can combine and do, you know, do some preventive early interventions that are out there with the vitamins and supplements plus vaccine. Um, or, you know, somebody says, you know what, I'll just, you know, take my chances with just the vitamins. Or somebody says, I'll just take my chances with the vaccine, whatever it is, but we need the information. Yep. Very, very well stated. Um, we could talk about <laughs> that forever in a day. We won't. We won't. Um, just, just one last one about uh, available information. And this one hits home with me personally. Um, John, what does available information inform us about natural immunity? On this one, I'm, I've heard there, there are well over now 100, I think even 150 studies, if I'm not mistaken, peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate that natural immunity is equal, if not better, than vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and recently, I, the CDC, I believe, acknowledged that natural immunity is, um, again, at least as effective, if not better, than natural immunity, which, which has not been the case for many, many months. Um, but uh, I think that's, again, a very important point. And, you know, this is something that even if you just look to other countries, um, many countries have been acknowledging the role of natural immunity uh, for months now, if not since the beginning of the pandemic, depending on which countries you're looking at, like Sweden, for example, was much earlier on in the pandemic acknowledging the natural, the role mm -hmm. of natural immunity um, in reaching herd immunity. Um, but other countries in Europe more recently, uh, with their whole green pass uh, system, were saying, well, you could actually, you can get a green pass if you're vaccinated, uh, or you can have the super green pass if you have natural immunity, um, which in either case would allow you to, you know, go about uh, certain activities that would otherwise, otherwise be restricted. So there, there should be uh, at this point, I think no question that natural immunity has to receive recognition um, as a form of solid uh, protection uh, against severe disease and illness and even against um, uh, uh, prevention of infection and transmission in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned earlier, I, I asked you all these various things not to try to get a, a definitive final answer on, on any of them, but I, I wanted to point them out because all because the information that you're giving us here is important. Well, it's important information to take into account in terms of informed consent. So kind of, and you've sort of kind of answered this question already, I, I think, as you were going through the various things we were talking about, but what role do all of these factors that we've been talking about, what role do they play in the formation of conscience with regard to COVID-19 vaccines and boosters? So they, they play a key role insofar as uh, our conscience judgment is going to be based on a credibility assessment of the science um, when we are deciding whether to be vaccinated or not, or, or which other uh, modes of preventing uh, serious illness or hospitalization uh, we might choose to pursue. So it's this question of, um, we must have access to sound information and the ability to judge for ourselves the credibility of the sources um, so that we can then come to a sound and reasoned conclusion in conscience uh, as to what the best way forward is to serve our personal good, 
and the goods of those around us. Because again, people may come to different conclusions. Um, one person may actually judge that, you know, if the risks of uh, COVID vaccination um, are, are just not worth it for me, I'm at low risk of the disease. It's, uh, you know, there, there are clearly these uh, potential adverse events, not super frequent, but still um, my likelihood of getting a serious adverse event may be higher based on the information I'm aware of than uh, my likelihood of having severe illness with COVID, especially if I'm going to pursue one of these earlier preventive uh, treatments and I have those ready on, on hand. And this in turn is actually going to better serve not just my own health good, but also the good of those in my family uh, who I might be able to share information with and those around me in my community uh, who I'm also protecting. So you can, you can have a vision and a view to the common good of all those around you and the protection of public health, um, either with or without vaccination, um, depending on your best understanding of the information that's out there. So you can reach a sound conscience assessment is the point. Um, and, and you have to go through that process of not just political rhetoric and, oh, I'm going to do this because the Republican Party says that, you know, I should, or I'm just a libertarian and I don't like people telling me what to do, but actually thinking through um, and, and coming to conclusions based on the best information you can find. Yeah. John, in light of all these issues that we've been discussing here for the past few minutes, what do you make of the controversy? Again, this is February 17th. Um, but what do you make of the controversy surrounding Joe Rogan's podcasts with uh, two of them in particular, with Dr. Robert Malone and with Dr. Peter McCullough, who you mentioned earlier? I don't know if you've listened to them at all, but uh, I think you're probably aware of some of the controversy. I'm just wondering, do you have any take on that? Yeah. So actually, before I, I comment specifically on that, uh, I'll definitely mention that both Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough are two examples of experts uh, who are, you know, at the top of their fields who uh, I have found to be credible in terms of their presentation and interpretation of the data that's out there. Uh, and I would certainly encourage anybody uh, who's listening to this, rather than taking my word for anything you've heard, <laughs> you know, please, especially on the science, uh, go to sources like Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, there are others, I mentioned a few like Dr. Paul uh, Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey from the Frontline uh, COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. There are also epidemiologists like Dr. Milton Kordoff, uh, Kaldorf of Harvard, uh, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, um, and uh, Dr. Sunetra Gupta uh, from Oxford. These three epidemiologists all actually signed what's called the Great Barrington Declaration back at the beginning, um, which was all about focused protection um, of the most vulnerable and was, uh, I, I think, infelicitously um, rebranded by, uh, by the media <laughs> and others as uh, the let it rip strategy, you know, to just uh, who cares, let COVID you know, kill everybody, which is, of course, not at all what they were saying. But anyway, actually go read what these people have to say. Listen to them. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Michael Yaden, who's the former senior VP at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, um, you know, you may or may not believe everything he has to say, but his past role certainly should pique the curiosity of anybody who is, um, you know, looking for credible sources of like what's going on here. Um, and so anyway, th there's, there are a bunch of, of other names. I won't go through through all of them, but I just think it's another it's an opportunity to say uh, back to your question about the Joe Rogan podcast. I, I think that 
I, while I haven't listened to it myself, I'd love to. <laughs> um, it, it's they're pretty long. long. I think it's over right. like three hours or something. Yeah, they're like three, three hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you have a long I, car ride, listen to it. They're very, very good. They really, really yeah. are, but they are very, very long. And there's a lot of information, a lot of good information. Right, right, right. Exactly. And so I would say, you know, I, I find the controversy unfortunate. Why is there a controversy? Um, you know, the, the controversy is ultimately around the fact that some people believe and accuse uh, these individuals of spreading misinformation. Well, I, I find the whole discussion of, well, this person's spreading misinformation just for that one. These are accusations that are kind of ad hominem that kind of suggest somebody's out there to distort your view of reality. But how about we approach this as, you know, people are out there trying to share information in their perspectives. And this is actually one of the constitutive elements of a sound um, democracy, uh, a sound um, uh, common approach to the common good. I, I think of the, the church's social doctrine, actually. Uh, one of the things I cited in my talk to the bishops is actually a passage from the compendium of the social doctrine, um, which talks about the need for um, this kind of open and transparent discussion and presentation of uh, information that society actually has a right to receive um, the transparent uh, and and clear and objective information so that the citizens can form uh, a proper opinion and, and assessment about biotechnologies. For example, I think that's the actual terminology that, that was from the compendium. Um, it talked about those biotechnological products and the need to avoid over-enthusiasm as well as unjustified alarmism, so the two extremes. But hey, if somebody's putting information out there and they're citing science and they're citing the literature and let people listen to it and draw their conclusions and let them listen to other voices um, so that they can draw their conclusions as well. But then to say, you know, for one source to point to the other and say, well, that's disinformation is not actually engaging in a scientific discussion. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just exactly. like, how about instead of just calling them disinformation, we we have a presentation of the evidence on both sides and maybe a discussion among the experts, not us lowly people over here trying to <laughs> you know, figure out what the heck is going on. But like, let the experts speak to one another. Um, and, and I'm aware that uh, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Peter McCullough and others have been asking for these kinds of open discussions. I'm not aware that they've had any favorable responses yet, for example, from CDC, NIH, uh, FDA, and others. Um, but I would love to see that. I mean, and, and any other um, scientific experts who are disagreeing with Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and, and saying that it's different disinformation, let's have a discussion, like get together, like talk to each other and film it and put it on YouTube and let us all, <laughs> you know, really, that, yeah. that would be helpful. <laughs> let's have them on bioethics on air. What the hell? Yeah. Oh, that's a great idea, Joe. <laughs> good luck with that. Anyway, good luck getting them anyway. Uh, Joe, I'd like to change gears a bit and focus on the, maybe the other side, so to speak, of con of conscience formation. And uh, in your presentation, you state the following, and this is a, a quote. So, quote, the Catholic, the Catholic teaching that we must follow the judgment of conscience is so powerful that, that it applies even when our understanding of the facts and circumstances is inaccurate. Naturally, there is a duty to properly form the conscience so that we do not mistakenly claim that our conscience tells us something when what we're really listening to are our passions or vices like fear, anger, selfishness, pride, resentment, or complacency, unquote. Great quote, 
And to be honest with you, this is something I struggle with myself. So maybe that's why I really like the quote so much. But John. <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Welcome to the club of humanity. <laughs> but, but with that in mind, John, how, how does one assure, at, at least to the extent that one can, that one's decision to not accept a COVID uh, vaccine or booster is actually a correct judgment of conscience and not simply an uh, an uncritical response to or a giving into our our passions or vices. How do you do that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think first of all, uh, as the catechism points out, I mean, the, the fundamental necessity for that at a minimum is self-reflection. <laughs> like you actually have to take the time to to think, why am I doing this? Why do I believe this? Why do I want to, you know, take or refuse the vaccine? Like what's causing this? Some, some time of self-reflection. Um, ultimately, of course, for proper formation of conscience, as I was talking about earlier, you know, we need things like, hey, reading sacred scripture, reflecting, praying on it. Um, we need to uh, ask the Holy Spirit to, to inspire us, to send us his grace, to give us the clarity um, if we're having trouble discerning and we think that maybe we have ulterior motives or, or passions that are conflicting there. And as much as possible, try to turn to reason, turn to the, the facts that, that we are able to ascertain, to question, you know, if there's something that maybe I'm afraid to even, you know, consider because it would, it would conflict with what I want to do. That's probably a sign that you should read something about that. You know, <laughs> you know, maybe you should read the opposing view if you absolutely don't want to read the opposing view at all for any, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, let me actually give it a read and see um, if there's something in there from a reason standpoint that I have been just pushing off um, because I just don't want to deal with it or, or whatever that is. So I think that's, I, I mean, obviously in the end, this is an internal, you know, an interior process for each individual to fully sort of attempt to, to discern to what extent they're being motivated by the, by passions or potentially, um, uh, vices and such, as opposed to a, a clear reasoned and prayerful, um, conclusion and conscience. Um, but, uh, I, I think the point again is, we should engage in that process. If we're not engaging in the process of self-reflection about those things, about the possibility that, oops, maybe I am just letting my passions get the best of me. If I'm not even thinking about that, then that's a problem. I, I should at least be thinking that, yeah, you know, I sometimes fool myself and, <laughs> you know, and I just do what I want to do. And then at least take some time to reflect on it. That's what I would say. <clears throat> yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm, I'm nodding my head because it's like, <laughs> yes, 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 I'm good. But kind of a, a follow up to that question in terms of difficulty with 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 forming conscience. I mean, one of the things that that's a real challenge for people is just the sheer volume of information, whether it's good information, whether it's bad information, and and particularly with the alarmism, the censorship, and the what you might call dubious follow the science talk that we hear uh, today with regard to the vaccines and the boosters. H how does one determine what information to believe and not to believe so as to, to properly form our conscience? And that is another very difficult question. I wish I had a pat answer for you. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you... I think let's let's put it this way. And some of the things I spoke to in the talk, I mean, I, what I don't think is sufficient, right? What's, what doesn't work is to simply say, oh, well, the CDC said it or, 
oh, well, you know, uh, Dr. McCullough said it. As like, okay, well, who is Dr. Joe McCullough? Rogan said it. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay, who is the CDC? Like, who actually works there? How do things work? Are there conflicts of interest? So, I mean, this is where I would go with that is, you know, how do we determine we, what we want to look for is ultimately credibility. And actually, I would make the comment, I think a big part of the problem that we're having right now with the whole COVID-19 vaccine question, um, as far as, you know, some people are talking about a crisis in the science, you know, on the one hand, people are talking about just follow the science, follow the science. On the other hand, people are saying, well, science is broken, public health is broken. Um, and I think what's really broken is the realization that credibility matters <laughs> and, and credibility has um, a moral and an intellectual value. So, and credibility isn't something that you get just by forcing people to do what you want because you have the power to do it, right? Credibility is something you have to earn as it should be. Um, and, and I actually often reflect on, on our Christian faith and going back to like when you do fundamental theology, um, the basics of it is credibility. Like, what are the reasons for credibility? Why should we believe in Jesus Christ? Why should we believe anything that's in the Holy Scripture? Why should we believe what the apostles said? And then you start to talk about things like, well, you know, actually, if you look back historically, you know, the apostles were a bunch of fishermen who didn't have the intellectual acumen to be able to invent this whole thing. You know, that's a reason for credibility, just as one example, right? And, and so we naturally and rightfully, it's an intellectual process of going through, why should I believe what so-and-so has to say? <clears throat> and it can't stop with, because so-and-so has the power to mandate this or because so-and-so has, you know, um, been voted into office or, you know, because so-and-so is a big uh, public media or social media uh, presence. That's not enough. We have to go deeper. We have to listen to how they speak, how they respond to questions. Um, and that's been, you know, I, 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 I struggle sometimes when I think about the average person out there trying to navigate these decisions. Because for me, to some extent, I mean, I put a lot of time in the past year and a half as part of my work into trying to reflect on all these things and investigating the different people out there and seeing how credible they sound to me and comparing what they're saying with others. And I just say, how does that's the average That's why show? I go to you. <laughs> right? That's why I go to you, John. That's why. That's why I said that. Oh, goodness. That. And, I, and I still don't have any guarantees, but it's, you know, I'm doing the best I can here. But um but, but, you know, how does the average per person handle this? And, and that's why in the end, you also realize we all rely on one another and on trust in one another. I would much rather, I wish I had somebody I could just say, hey, this guy I know so well. And this person I know is an awesome scientist and knows all this stuff like better than anybody. And I'm a personal acquaintance of this person. Like we're old friends. We go back way far. I know they would never say anything that's not true, you know, and and then I could say, all right, you just tell me all the answers. <laughs> You'd be my adjudicator. Wouldn't that be grand? Um, but uh, but that's not how it is. So <laughs> no, we we have this um, we have this situation where we need to consider things again. Like to continue what I was saying before, um, are there conflicts of interest? Like what potential conflicts of interest could uh, I don't know? Um, you know, somebody who's working at the FDA. Uh, who maybe has some kind of ties to the pharmaceutical companies that are the very ones who um, are, are making available the vaccines and who stand to profit from all of it and the government's buying it from. You know, these kinds of questions. I'm not accusing anyone of anything right here, but I'm just saying <laughs> these are the kinds of questions people should ask, right? What are, what are con potential conflicts? Is there a history of integrity? Um, again, in the companies that are producing the pharmaceuticals, what's the track record of uh, a Moderna or a Pfizer or a Johnson & Johnson? You know, have there been problems in the past from a regulatory standpoint? Should I question whether this is all well and good and there's no reason to be concerned? Or are there reasons I might say, you know what, maybe there's something that's not quite right here. Um, 
And and to go to, to tie into this credibility question, I, I actually um, quoted from Pope Francis in a, a recent talk that he gave um, on the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas. He was talking about uh, the problems of spreading disinformation um, right. and that, yep. you know, the, this just like in tune with this church of social teaching, we need to make available sound and complete information. And he was making the point that obviously if you're deliberately spreading disinformation, that's a violation of human rights. Um, it's also something that is, uh, I would say, um, uh, it, it's something that is typical of totalitarian governments. Um, and it can also be typical of major corporations that are trying to make a profit. And, and a lot of what happens in marketing um, can be ultimately, I won't call it disinformation, but I'll call it um, a, an effort to hyperemphasize the good things <laughs> about your product and completely gloss over anything that might, you know, deter people from buying your product. Um, and so Pope Francis said in this, this address, you know, may we never tire of verifying the data, presenting them in a suitable way, uh, pursuing our own search for truth. And he says that this search cannot yield to a commercial viewpoint, to the interests of the powerful, to great economic interests. Um, and rather, what we need is an antidote to algorithms projected to maximize commercial profit. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, obviously, we need to be aware. This is, a sim if nothing else, it's a reminder that information is not necessarily reliable simply because it comes from the people who have all the money to do all the marketing or who have all right. the power to, to tell you, you know, that, that you need to do it. Um, we have to verify. Um, and, and we have to not simply take it at the value of um, this person's powerful, therefore it's true. Uh, and, and there can be all sorts of conflicts of interest that may not have our best interests at heart, um, which is all the more reason why uh, we should not be, for the sake of the common good, we should not be mandating um, and, and we should not be censoring um, scientific discussion. We should be enabling those conversations and allowing uh, individuals to make their own judgments about the credibility uh, of the sources and thereby come to um, well-founded conscience judgments. <clears throat> this concludes part one of my interview with John D. Cabillo. In part two, John discusses how the Catholic understanding of the common good can help inform responses to challenging questions raised by COVID-19 vaccines and boosters, as well as mandates. For more information on these and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our bioethics public policy report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.